Hey everyone, my name is Adam and welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. At the end of today's episode, please take a minute and download our free Chestnut Ridge app. It has all our recent message content and more. You can also head to theridge.church to get information on service times and get info on everything going on here at the Ridge. We hope this podcast will encourage and inspire you as you continue to grow in your relationship with God and others. Good morning. Over the past several years, there's been a trend in our country. More and more adults are feeling more and more anxious every year. The American Psychology Association has been doing a poll to kind of track this over the past few years. In 2017, they found that 36% of adults were more anxious than they were in 2016. In 2018, that number rose to 39%, felt more anxious that year than the year before. In 2019, it was 32% of adults felt more anxious than the year before. Now in 2020, 62%, 62% of adults felt more anxious than they did in 2019. And I mean, that should come as no surprise. 2020 was a year filled with uncertainty. It was a year filled with just absolute craziness and chaos in all different areas of life. But Merriam-Webster, they define anxiety as this, as a feeling of worry, nervousness, or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain outcome. So we see that word uncertainty pop up again. And here are the top four things that adults listed as reasons for being anxious in 2020. Uh, The first one, keeping family safe, 80% of adults were anxious about that. The second, COVID-19, 75%. Gun violence in America, 73%. Personal health, 73%. But what's interesting is that 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 should be expected, right? Last year was crazy, but this year, 41% of people feel more anxious in 2021 than in 2020. When we were in lockdown, when all this craziness, everything was going on, people are more anxious this year than they were last year. So we can see even without the anomaly of 2020 and all the craziness and chaos, it's very easy to see. More and more adults are more and more anxious every year. And the same, and it's probably even more so, is true for our kids as well. We we feeling good now? (laughs) We all happy, ready to go enjoy a nice Sunday with some of those statistics? No, probably not, right? And and I'm sorry, I apologize for the little bit of a Debbie Downer to start, but there's a really important reason that I wanted to share that, and that's because I believe that anxiety is one of the main thieves of our joy. Anxiety is one of the main thieves of our joy. It steals it from us. Solomon writes this in Proverbs 12, 25. He says that anxiety in a person's heart weighs it down. When you feel anxious, when you feel worried, don't you feel it's like someone's just sitting on your chest, it's tight, it's hard to breathe, you feel claustrophobic almost, right? Anxiety weighs a person's heart down, but a good word cheers it up. And clearly, I think that we've lost almost all ability to deal with anxiety in our society. I mean, anxiety is now just the norm, it's the way in which that we all almost exist. But this was not the way that God intended for us to live, to operate. Rather, he didn't want us to be overwhelmed by worry and anxiety, but actually overcome with peace because of the knowledge and presence of his love for us. 
Before we move on, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't mention that anxiety disorders are real. Real just like a physical illness, like the flu, like cancer. It's, it's a real physical illness. And, uh, and, and they're often connected with traumatic events. Sometimes they're connected with chemical imbalances in your brain. But the point is, is, is if you feel anxious, like so anxious, that like anxiety is interfering with, with your daily life on a great scale, we would encourage you to seek help from a medical professional, a mental health professional, and we would love to connect you with someone in that way. They've helped a lot of people in my family and me as well in regard to anxiety. This is week five of our series, Finding Joy in Uncertain Time, where we're looking at the book of Philippians, and we're looking at kind of Paul's secret to finding joy in those times. And in week one, Pastor Tim looked at how we become rightly related to God. And that's through the gospel. It's through placing our faith in Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. And both of those things, we become rightly related for God. The fancy Bible word for that is justification. So if you place your faith in Christ, you are justified. You're made right with God. You're no longer his enemy. You're free from guilt. You are now have peace with God. And the cool thing is the status of justification, it never changes. And this is reason for great joy. But not only are we made right with God in a legal sense when we place our faith in Christ, but we're also made right with God in a relational sense as well. See, Paul talks about it like this, that when we place our faith in Christ, God adopts us as sons and daughters into his family. And the status, the status of a son or a daughter of the king, the status of a brother or a sister of the son, that status also never changes. The same can be true of our earthly families, right? I mean, like, no matter what I do, I'll always be an archer. I mean, even if I change my last name, I'd still be my dad's son, I'd still be my sister's brother. I can't escape that in some sense. However, the way that I live, it has a great impact on those relationships. Like, like for example, if I just don't talk to my dad for a long time, or if he calls me and I stop, I don't pick up, or I don't return his phone calls, even though I'm still an archer, even though I'm still his son, that's gonna put a strain on our relationship. Or like if I'm rude to my sister, even though I'm still an archer, even though I'm uh, still her brother, it's gonna put a strain on our relationship. I mean, if my family has set before me a way in which to live, and I don't live in that way, even though I'm still an archer, I'm still a part of the family, I'm dishonoring my family, and I'm putting strains on all of those relationships. However, the reciprocal is also true. If I talk with my dad every day, our relationship's gonna grow. If I'm nothing but kind to my sister, which take my word for it, that's the case, and don't ask her, please, uh, our relationship will only grow. If I live out the rules of the life, of, of life that my family have given me, I will bring honor to my family, and our relationship will only grow. In the same way, even though that we've placed, if we've placed our faith, faith in Christ, we are justified and that can never change, and we are uh, part of his family, we are sons and daughters of the king and that will never change, the way in which we live, it has an impact. And it can strain our relationship or it can draw us closer to him. Oswald Chambers put it this way. He said, the secret to joy 
is being rightly related to God. The secret to joy is being rightly related to God. And here in Philippians chapter four, what Paul wants us to understand is how we are to be rightly related to God. What does that mean? What does that look like for us? So let's start in verse one, see what he has to say. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and my crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. That phrase, that word stand firm, it's a, think Roman soldier term. Think about Roman soldiers, they're standing in battle, in battle facing imminent death, almost certain doom, and they're refusing to retreat. They're standing firm in the face of that almost certain death. Now Paul had the credibility to tell the Philippian church and by proxy tell us as we read this today to stand firm because he had stood firm. And now is currently standing firm as he's imprisoned for the gospel and might be put to death for his faith. I think if there's anyone that can talk on standing firm, it's probably Paul. Well, you might ask the question, why? Well, what reason do we have to stand firm? And it's cool because Paul just says this, the chapter before, the verses preceding this. That's why he starts with so then or because of, because of what I just told you, that we have this hope in Jesus for eternity We can stand firm today in the midst of our struggles. Verse two, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. These are the women that Tim mentioned a few weeks ago who were having a dispute and uh, were probably part of the reason why Paul wrote chapter two where he's talking about humility, serving one another, thinking of one another as more important and this unity that we need to have in the church. He goes on to talk about it in verse three, Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul asks for help from a true partner, and we don't know who that is exactly, but we can assume that it's probably like the lead pastor or one of the elders or somebody who had authority in the church who would have been close with or maybe knew these two ladies and could help that situation resolve it and bring peace among their distress. In verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And here we see the central theme of our series and one of the main themes of Paul's letter, rejoicing, this joy. And rejoicing in particular always, so that includes uncertain times, includes difficult times. It's a pretty tall task. I know it's difficult to do. I mean, it's easy when we're winning. It's easy when things are going well. It's easy when things seem certain to rejoice. All those times, it's very easy. We're all pretty good at it. However, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of difficulty, when things are not going our way, it is a much harder thing to do. Thankfully, Paul does not leave us hanging. He goes on to tell us how we can do this, and it's really good stuff. Verse five, let your graciousness be known to everyone The Lord is near. Again, I think Paul is making a callback to chapter two here as he says, let your graciousness be known to everyone. What he's really saying is, hey, I want your reputation to be one of selflessness and respect. And not just to the people inside the building, but to everyone, those outside the building as well. And man, what a legacy. What a legacy that would be to leave, to be known by our graciousness. I mean, I know this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I think this is something that we really ought to wrestle with. I mean, is the the whole global church today known for its graciousness? 
but we, we can't control what other churches do. Is the Ridge known for its graciousness? I really hope so. I hope we only continue to grow in that reputation if we have it, and if we don't, we begin to go down that road. I think we do, but let's keep going that way. However, I think this question really, uh, the rubber really begins to meet the road with this question when we ask it of ourselves. Am I known by my graciousness? What's my reputation? What's your reputation? I mean, maybe we're gracious with some people and not others. Maybe we're gracious with people to their face, but how about online are we gracious? Are we known by our graciousness to those? Are we known by our graciousness to the people who affiliate with different political parties than we do? Or do we just see them as the them and, and we don't treat them the same way that we would treat somebody who sees the world the same way that we do? Are we known by our graciousness when college kids lose a football game? I think it's a tough question to ask ourselves. It's a tough question to really wrestle with. But here's the thing, you can only control what you do. You can control what no one else in this world does. You control what you do and how you react to what everyone else does. And here's the thing is that we're all leaving a legacy. Whether we know it or not, and whether we like it or not, everything you're doing is leaving a legacy before you. And it will leave a legacy that follows you. And so you just gotta take that question seriously, man. What is your legacy gonna be? It's up to you, no one else. The next couple of verses are some of the most well-known, not just in this letter, but in the whole of the scripture. And what Paul is giving us in these verses is really kind of the core of the message today. It's a formula to, as Chambers put it, to be rightly related to God. And that matters because the secret to joy is being rightly related to God. Now Warren Wearsby, theologian, he describes this formula as follows. It goes with right praying and right thinking and right living. Right praying, right thinking, right living. Let's see what he means by that. We'll hop into verse six here. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. Now, how many of you, when we read those first couple of words, begin to get a little anxious? I mean, right, it's like, what do you mean don't worry about anything, don't be anxious about anything? I, how can I not be anxious about that? How can I not, like, you know, I start to feel a little bit of weight in my chest and a little, you know, my throat starts to feel tight, right? It's like, you know, especially for those of us who are prone to worry, that kind of feels like mission impossible. But what's cool is what Paul is saying here in the Greek uh, can actually be translated a little bit differently and I think it's helpful for us to understand. It says, in, in another way this could be translated is don't continue to worry about anything or don't remain anxious about anything. So really what Paul is trying to communicate is we have a choice. When we're faced with uncertainty, when we're faced with difficulty, when we're faced with something tough, we have a choice. We can continue down the path of worry and anxiety that will not lead anywhere beneficial or we can stop and pray. However, there's a caveat to his prayer. It's not just pray however you want. He gives us some instruction on how to pray. There's two specific attitudes that he gives us. And so in the version that we read up on the screen with the CSB that, I, that I've got here, it uses the word petition. Some other versions translate that word as supplication, which I, I, I like that word uh, a lot better actually. And that word supplication, it comes from the root word suppliant which that's a noun, it's a person. A person would be a suppliant. And where this comes from is think like Roman emperor times, right? Roman empire. And your town, your village, your city just got conquered. 
they just came in, they ransacked the whole place, they have totally taken over, and for some reason they've spared your life, for whatever reason, right? And so now here you are, helpless, hopeless, you got no bargaining chips, your life is at the mercy in the hands of this king, this general, emperor, whoever it is that's in charge, at their authority. You have nothing to offer at all. You're kneeling before the victors, no control. And so a suppliant would be that person now making a humble request to someone in power or authority. So when we think of ourselves as suppliants to God, in the same way we realize, man, we have no control. We have nothing to offer, nothing to bring to this relationship, nothing to put on the table, no bargaining chips. In this way, we could maybe pray like, God, I present this circumstance to you. I present my anxiety you know, to you about this circumstance. I to totally just open my palms up, let you have it. I trust your judgment, and I'm willing to accept whatever you think is best, because you know best. That's how we are to pray. This is the first attitude, the first caveat of what our prayer should look like, of what right praying looks like. The second is thanksgiving. Paul says that we need to pray with thanksgiving, so if prayer is the act of presenting something to the Lord, supplication and thanksgiving are the attitudes, the postures in which we are to present these things to God. And just think about it for a minute. I mean, like, think about who God is. He created everything. He's the one that's in charge. He's omnipotent, omniscient. He is everything, and compared to him, we're really not a whole lot. And he doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us his ear to listen to us. We have no right to his ear, to his audience, and yet he gives it to us anyways. He allows us to approach him. And his word says to approach him boldly. But I think I take for granted sometimes that, man, I should be really grateful that God is willing to listen to me because he doesn't need to. It doesn't help him. It only helps us. It only benefits us. So we need to realize how grateful we should be even just for the simple fact that God is willing to listen. Jesus put it this way in Matthew chapter 11, and I, and I love this. He says this, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And I love that Jesus is just saying, look, the way in which I approach my relationship with the Father is lowly and it's humble. If Jesus is lowly and humble in that, in that way, if that's his posture, how much more so should our posture be that? And I love what he says, what happens when we do that. He has an easy and a light yoke and a light burden and rest will come for our souls. And that's what Paul digs into here in this next verse in seven. He says, the peace of God, so if you do this and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So with right prayer comes the peace of God. This is an incredible promise, it's one that we should hold very dear, however, I don't want us to misunderstand the promise. I don't want us to misunderstand what Paul is saying because Paul is not saying that if we pray rightly, that God will take away our anxiety or our worry. Paul is not saying that if we pray rightly, he will change the circumstance that is causing this distress. Paul is not saying that we, might act, that we might get the thing that we're praying for. He's not saying that that's what's going to happen. What Paul is saying, though, is so much better. Paul is saying that right, pay, right prayer leads to a peace. 
an indescribable state of well-being that guards, that covers, that shelters your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. If you tuned in to our last episode of Real Life Freedom from Anxiety, uh, you know, shameless plug, it was incredible. The counselors that were on that were just awesome. They did a great job breaking down anxiety, uh, better than I'm doing today for sure. And so I would encourage you to go check that out after this. But one of them, Al Kasperowitz, he's a licensed psychologist uh, and he's a co-founder of Stillwater Counseling here in Morgantown. He had an incredible illustration that helps us kind of bring this idea that Paul is getting at to life a little bit. So he said this, think about when a child gets a cut, right? a little cut on your finger. When a kid gets a cut, what happens? I mean, they know they have a cut, they're in pain, they can see it, right, it's very clear, it's obvious, there's a cut there. But what do they do? They run to mom or dad or brother, sister, grandma, grandpa, aunt, uncle, somebody, and they say, hey look, I need a Band-Aid. They're asking for a Band-Aid, and, and so you get the Band-Aid, and the Band-Aid is wrapped around, placed on the cut, but here's the thing is, the, the child knows that the cut is still there. They don't think the cut just has magically disappeared. But what happens is, the state of well-being that comes from the Band-Aid being placed far surpasses the anxiety. It far surpasses the challenge of the cut, the problem of the cut. And in the same way, the peace from God that Paul is talking about acts in the same way. It doesn't necessarily just take away our anxiety in that moment, but God kind of wraps us up in this peace like a blanket, like a Band-Aid that covers whatever is stirring your heart. It's really pretty incredible. And Paul talks in verse eight about the next step in being rightly related to God, and this one is uh, pretty interesting, I think. He says this in verse eight, finally, brothers and sisters, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. You know what my mom used to always tell me growing up? Probably something your parents might have told you. Garbage in, garbage out, right? We've all heard that at some point probably and it always irritated me. And I'd be like, yeah, cool, mom, great. And then I would go to listen to Eminem and 50 Cent and I couldn't put two and two together while I was getting in trouble when I was repeating what I had just heard, right? I was putting some garbage in and garbage was coming out and I didn't want to admit it, but it's true. The things that we dwell on, that word dwell, I love that Paul uses, the things we dwell on, the focus on, they impact us. They have a great impact us. And when we're faced with uncertain times, if all we do is dwell on those things, if all we do is dwell on the problems, dwell on what's causing the uncertainty, often nothing gets better. I mean, usually we just end up paralyzed or panicked. And what happens is that our worry has not helped anything, it has not advanced, it hasn't fixed a single problem, and we end up not being able to see the forest for the trees. But this right thinking can be applied even outside of difficult times, right in the middle of it, I think, as well. And I think that we live in a time, I mean, where we have easier and more access to more information that we could know what to do with. And some of it is great. I mean, like I'm never anywhere without my Bible because I have my phone, right, and I have the Bible app here, and that's, that's a good thing, I would say. Some of it is not so great. Here's the thing, though, is I, I think that technology, and probably even more specifically social media, I think they're a lot like fire. Fire's good, right? Fire provides light, it provides heat, provides a way to cook, 
There's lots of good things that fire provides, but it only provides those things when it's contained, when there's restraints, when there's a bunch of rocks, right, in a fire pit. When there's no constraints, when there's nothing holding that fire back, fire goes from life giving to life taking. It becomes devastating. It destroys. It eats everything in its path. And the same can be said about technology and social media. With limits, with constraints, with guardrails, they can have a positive impact on us and they can have a positive impact on our society. Without those things, well, I think we're living in the middle of the devastation currently in a lot of ways. Depression, anxiety, loneliness, suicide, all heavily linked to social media, to screen time, to how much we are dwelling on those things, doom scrolling, if you've heard of that, right? Where you just can't look away at all the terrible things, you just gotta keep going through. Paul says this in Romans chapter 12, one and two. He says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And my concern for our society, my concern for the church, my concern for myself, is that we're being conformed to this age. We're not allowing ourselves to be transformed. We're not allowing our mind to be renewed by what is just, what is true, what is honorable, what is pure, what is commendable and praiseworthy. Now here's the thing, I, I don't think Paul would encourage us to throw our phones away and, and get rid of technology, and I wouldn't either, but I think we need to consider the question, am I being conformed or am I being transformed? Am I being conformed or am I being renewed? What are the things that I'm dwelling on? What are they doing to me? What is the impact they're having on me? One of our college students, Emma, she, uh, a couple weeks ago at our group night at the, at the Lair, she was telling us kind of at the end of group, she was like, this is really cool. She was like, hey, so I've realized that every time I pull out my phone, I open it, and the first thing I do without even thinking about it, click on TikTok. You don't know what TikTok is, it's a cool new app that the kids are using these days. Um, but anyway, so she just like doesn't even think about it, right? Not, not even trying to, instinctively clicks on TikTok. So she was like, well, what if I move TikTok and I put my Bible app where TikTok is? And so she said for the next couple of days, she realized that she'd pull out her phone and her mind would just tell her to click where that was and then the Bible would be staring her in the face and she's like, oh, I can't not read it now, I gotta read it. And it's pretty funny, but like, man, I just think what if we spend as much time dwelling on the things Paul encouraged us to dwell on compared to so many of the things that we waste our time on? How much of a difference might that make? Paul reveals the last step in his formula to be rightly related to God in verse nine. He says, do what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen in me and the God of peace will be with you. Oftentimes, I don't think we see the connection between the way in which we live and our distress, between the way in which we live and our anxiety, between the way in which we live and our worry, but there's a great connection. I mean, God designed this world and gave us instructions on how to live in in such a way that humans would flourish. So think about it, when we don't live in accordance with the way in which the creator designed things, naturally, things are not going to go well. David puts it like this in Psalm one, he says, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. And I, I mean, I don't think there needs to be much more said about this. I think we can all think of times in our brain right now 
where we have walked in the way of wicked and things have only gone toward ruin. And that is just the end of that route. That's the end result of walking in the wicked, of living in a way that God has told us not to live or not living in the way that he has told us to. But when we live according to his way, he watches over us. He's with us. It leads to human flourishing. When we're doing these three things, right praying, right thinking, right living, Paul says that we will have the peace of God and that the God of peace will be with us. In other words, we'll be rightly related to him and we'll have a peace that surpasses all understanding and covers our worry, covers our anxiety. And I wanna share maybe one of the, the best examples I have of someone doing this and it only happened a couple of weeks ago. Uh, here's a picture of me and my dad at, uh, over at Ruby Memorial. Um, and I wanna start just by saying that my dad is doing well. He's recovering, he's not quite 100%, but he is here with us this morning, which is fun. Hi, dad. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're very excited he's doing well. Uh, so what happened was two weeks ago, my dad had a heart attack. He was rushed to Ruby. And uh, when he got in, the doctors realized he had a heart attack. They admitted him and they performed a heart catheterization, which is basically where they put a tube in your arm and up this giant artery through your armpit and into your heart, which sounds terrifying. And they get in there and they just kind of look at what's going on, what's causing the problem and how can we fix it. And when they did that, they realized or they saw that there were three partially blocked arteries and one completely blocked artery in my dad's heart. And so what they did is they decided they would then put a stint in that artery to totally open it up. And what's crazy is they can just like do that right then and there as they already have, like it's amazing kind of the technology that God has allowed to happen um, to kind of help people medically. But one of the craziest things about this whole process is while this tube is here, while this is all happening, you're awake. You're not put to sleep, you are awake. Now granted, they do give you some medicine so you don't feel it like in that whole thing, but you're awake. And I just can't imagine that. I mean, like, put yourself in my dad's shoes. Like, you just have a heart attack. You're here. You don't know what's going on. You're trusting that the doctors do, but now there's this tube up your arm, and they're operating, and they're talking. Doctors and nurses are discussing what to do and what's going on, and they're telling you you've got blocked arteries, and, and man, you begin to worry and think about what if this doesn't go the way that I want it, and, and what's gonna happen with my, with my wife and my family, and, and I mean, just imagine the, the, the flood of worry that's gonna come over you. Even if you don't feel it like crazy, I mean, things don't get much more uncertain than that. However, probably the wildest part of the story is that when I was talking to my dad in that picture that day, that Friday, a couple days later, and he was feeling better, he said that he was experiencing an overwhelming sense of peace, a state of well-being in the midst of that situation, which I can't fathom for myself, my dad was receiving peace from God. Why? Because while he's on that table, while they've got this tube in his body, he was asking God to be with him. He was petitioning God with thanksgiving, saying, God, I thank you for who you are, for the fact that you love me, that I'm your beloved son. The conversation we had was really, really cool just to get to hear his perspective and hear how he was able to do this in the midst of one of the most uncertain times of his life he turned to God and God covered his anxiety and covered his worry with peace that surpasses all understanding. I can't explain it and I don't think he would be able to either. But to me, that is proof that one of the secrets to joy is truly being rightly related to God. 
I can't imagine the fear and the worry and the anxiety taking over if he hadn't been doing that in that moment. I've got another story that I wanna share that I think will help us as we consider how to apply this to our lives. So before we came to the Ridge, before uh, we were back in Morgantown, when we were living in Arlington, Virginia, I was a pastoral intern at a church in Arlington, and it was one of the last Sundays I was gonna be there. And I was hanging out with some students before, like they did Sunday school. I was hanging out before Sunday school, and uh, my wife Delaney walks in the room, and our daughter, oldest daughter Kinsley, she was our only daughter at that time, uh, but she was two, she walks in as well, and she sees me, she runs up to me, dad, dad, you know, the whole thing, it's awesome. And then she kind of like goes out ahead of me a little bit. And then these like eight or 10 junior, senior high, high school guys who I was really tight with, they run up to her and they're like, hey, Kinsley, what's going on? And some are down here, high five, how you doing? Whatever, bringing all this energy. And Kinsley sees these guys. She's like over here seeing these guys and she kind of whoop about face, runs back to me, looks at me, looks back at them, points to me and she's like, dada. And I think what she was trying to communicate in her two-year-old way is, hey, if you mess with me, you gotta mess with my dad and you don't wanna mess with my dad. And I, and I, I love that because I think what was happening in her two-year-old brain is that she was facing something she didn't know what to do with. It was way too big for her to handle. These guys were a whole lot bigger to her and to her relatively unknown, and they were bringing all kinds of energy she did not know how to deal with. And in the face of that uncertainty, when she didn't have the capacity to deal with it, she ran to her father. And I think we need to be a whole lot more like Kinsley when we face uncertainty, when things are hard, when we don't know what to do. We need to run to the Father. As Paul says, even in everything, we need to turn from anxiety, turn from worry, and we need to run to the Father. That is the only place where we will find peace that surpasses all understanding, where we will find joy. And now I think there's, there's some of us here today that, that probably have never ran to the Father before, that don't have this relationship that we're talking about with God, and I would just encourage you. I mean, this is the only place you're gonna find peace and joy that surpasses all understanding. I would encourage you to run to the Father. For those of you that do know God, consider right thinking, right living, right praying. What, man, where could you grow in that? In what ways could you grow that relationship with God rather than strain it? Maybe in what ways do you not run to the Father in difficult circumstances? No matter where you're at today, the lone encouragement is this, to run to the Father. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next time.